0: Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Rikotinas. And thank you for your patience over these past weeks. Uh, This weak and sickly body of mine has finally recovered. But uh, I'm glad to be back. And we're picking up tonight on page 160. If you remember, we've been looking at uh, hypothesis 20 which has been uh, following the followers along on the importance of heeding the advice of elders and also having a willingness in one's spiritual life to reveal one's thoughts without uh, in any way sort of hiding anything, but rather bringing the, whether it's the temptations, thoughts, or actions out into the light in order that they might be healed. Uh, And as we see, this is a challenging thing for us, that it's often a source of embarrassment for us, or it can be a matter of pride as well, that we want to keep certain, thing, certain things about ourselves hidden. And uh, this is followed up in the hypothesis 21, I think with an equally important thought, which is the importance of uh, only revealing these kinds of thoughts to wise and experienced elders, that we don't indiscriminately in other words, reveal the, the deepest uh, secrets of the heart to everyone. And I think this is uh, equally important in our, our day and age. Um, the social media has even become a place where people talk about really matters of the heart and, uh, and aspects of the spiritual life, the things that they struggle with. And also, uh, you know, I think seeking counsel, naturally, but sometimes maybe not receiving the counsel that is needed or best for them as individuals. Uh, We know from even some some of the saints that great harm uh, can be done uh, because of this. Uh, Saint Teresa of Avila wrote about it, how how much pain she experienced over the course of many years and the experience of many spiritual directors in terms of the counsel that she did receive that was not simply unhelpful but harmful to her spiritually. And led her into a kind of desolation about things, and uh, so it'll be. It's important, I think, that we pair these two together, uh, because I think I think the idea of revealing our thoughts uh, so freely can be a frightening thing, and uh, and so I think to hear it said so explicitly, this is not to be done, you know, in public or indiscriminately, is an important thing for us to hear as well you know, that we really want to find someone who is a confidant, but not only that, but also has an experience in the spiritual life, knows and can help discern what we are struggling with spiritually and give us good counsel. Okay, so again, we're on page 160. We're picking up with number five, uh, starting with St. Anthony. The same St. Anthony also said, it behooves a monk to show spirit before the elders, he should ask them if he is perhaps doing something wrong. If possible, even how many steps he should take or how many drops of water he should drink in his cell. And so Anthony you know, is very explicit about this, especially for those who have made the choice to enter into the desert and who are living uh, under the guidance of an elder, that forming a mind and a heart that is free uh, from the inhibition and does not want to veil things, but really wants to pull back the veil of the heart to another. Uh, The training takes place even in these most basic areas of our life. And again, this might seem a little odd to us and would be odd to us if our spiritual director was telling us, "Okay, you're allowed to have this many cups of water during the day, or you have to tell me how many steps you took during the day or something like that. It would be uh, rather peculiar. But for those living in a small group under an elder, I think for them to get into the habit of revealing the thoughts and the actions becomes very important. Uh, Because they are engaged in this kind of deep spiritual warfare, as we've talked about in the past, to enter into the desert and the solitude of the desert, the spiritual enemies are going to be fierce and the battles on a psychological level. And so really having a good sense of what's going on in the mind and the heart becomes important. A brother who was in obedience to a certain father discovered a place in the desert, which was isolated and quiet. He made a request to his spiritual father saying, allow me to live in that place and I will trust in God and in your prayers that I will have strength to accomplish many deeds. The Abba let him go, but said to him, I know indeed that you have the strength to submit yourself to many labors, but in not not having an elder, you trust your work, you trust that your work will be pleasing to God. On account of this self-confidence, that you are rightly performing the duties of a monk, you will lose both the benefits of your labors and your mind. And so very powerful thought that it's not simply a matter of strength or endurance as we've talked about in the past in the ascetical life. It's not what it's about. And that this young monk had the constitution to follow his inclination, which was to go off into deep solitude, that he could stand the isolation and perhaps would even have the discipline to maintain the spiritual life and maintain the silence and the ascetical life that was needed. But uh, not having uh, experience and not having the guidance of the elder, he would be vulnerable vulnerable to the, the temptations of the evil one and vulnerable to trusting in his own judgment. There's one little line here. I, I think it's in this section about one of the authors saying, there's nothing that I fear more than my own opinion on matters. And uh, most of us, I think, feel often very confident in our opinion on, on matters. And, uh, and so for a monk, I think, to want to go off to a place where he has no one to pick him up where he falls or no one to keep an eye on him uh, and uh, guide him if he seems to be uh, going off on the wrong path is not only going uh, to lose the benefits, as he's told here of his labors, but lose his mind. That this would be a very real danger for one living in that danger, that they would become deluded Uh, you know, so confident in themselves, their own judgment, that even if the demon did present himself to him directly, uh, he would be very easily think that this is something from God and convince himself that because of his strength, his heroics of going off into the desert, his great asceticism, that somehow he was worthy uh, of these visions. And, And so having no one to communicate the fact that he was having them could fall deeper and deeper into this kind of, of delusion. Okay. Any thoughts or comments so far? So sound, sound counsel. Number six, Abba Moses said, a monk who is attached to a spiritual father, but does not have obedience or humility, but of his own will fast or does something else, which he believes is good, will never acquire virtue, nor will he learn what it is to be a monk. Uh, A number of times we've talked about this, that in the spiritual life, we can be willful in our choice of very spiritual practices. And so the practices in and of themselves might be good. Uh, Say at the beginning of Lent, we might uh, choose to take up a certain discipline. Uh, but not really follow the guidance of the church uh, uh, in terms of what those practices would look like, or more importantly, the guidance of an elder or a confessor to run those things by someone. Uh, For us, most often, that would be a confessor uh, that we would ask, you know, I'm thinking about uh, fasting, you know, so many days a week or for this amount of time. You know, what do you think of that? Is that a wise thing? Uh, and have someone who knows us, n- knows our capacity for for whether or not we've had any experience with fasting and how we would respond. So whether or not we need to moderate that fasting or, on the other hand, perhaps be willing to challenge ourselves a little bit more uh, so that it would bear greater fruit for us. And uh, so he's, he's, again, explicit as in the, the first paragraph that we looked at tonight, will never acquire virtue or learn to what it is to be a monk. The fundamental to being a monk is to seek to conform oneself to Christ. And so in the, that conformity, we are to, to really have the spirit of humility and obedience guiding us. That Christ's food was to do the will of the Father. And we see him driven by this spirit of obedience throughout the course of his life. He does nothing of his own accord, but only what the father tells him. And so the monk is only trying to emulate, to imitate uh, Christ himself. And in any way, even in small ways, I think when he begins to trust in his own judgment and become willful in that, even when exteriorly it looks very positive, and it looks as though uh, it's something that's virtuous. It can lead them down the opposite path. That ex- you know, There is this temptation, I think, for us to cling to external appearances, that there's something that feeds the ego there. To, to be able to view ourselves or to have others view us in a certain light can be a, a, a very seductive thing, even sometimes in a very subtle way, uh, having people see us as being deeply immersed in the faith. Oh, you're always praying, or, gee, you fast so much during the week. I could never do that. And, uh, and so if that's made known or, again, if that's embraced willfully, uh, it can, we can lose any of the virtue that would possibly would be gained from it. Josie. Does this first monk who said that he wanted to trust in God in the solitude of the desert demonstrate to us that God won't save someone who is alone or that isn't the way that we approach the idea of complete trust in God? The context of my question being the mantra that we should trust only and fully in God and only he can help us. Okay, Uh, yeah, I think I, I understand what you're saying here that you know we are always to trust in god and to seek uh, his will for us and for a monk the the reality of that or the evidence of that would be his living in obedience following the rule living in obedience to his his abbot and so it's not i think we're hearing in these early writings of simply going off into the desert alone that is salvific. It's one discipline among many, and in fact, one that are, would few would be called to. It is trust in God and entrusting our lives to him and his providence and our willingness to em- embrace the teachings of the gospel in obedience and to live in obedience to our particular calling. You know, whether it's pursuing holiness within the context of married life, of the single life, or of the priesthood, that we would be faithful and obedient to those vows and all that they they mean for us. And even on a more fundamental level, uh, I think being faithful to our baptismal vows, that we are all called to this radical holiness in Christ. And she follows, Josie follows up with the question. So, being completely alone isn't a sort of extra trust in God? Not necessarily. I often want to be alone. (laughs) And that could just make me an introvert or someone who, uh, you know, doesn't have a lot of social skills, (laughs) but not necessarily a saint uh, or someone who's pursuing holiness or and certainly doesn't necessarily express a greater trust in God. In fact, there can be great fear uh, sometimes at work within us that makes us want to retreat from the world and engagement with others, even, and not even strangers, I think, make us want to retreat from our engagement with others in our day-to-day life, even those in our midst, that we can sort of shrink back in into our cocoon and uh, absorb ourselves in work, and uh, distract ourselves, and in that way, you know, go into a kind of solitude that is protective more than it is opening our, our minds and our hearts to God and to others. In the most radical way, a monk living in the desert is at the heart of reality. He's, he's opening his mind and his heart completely to God. And in this way, it should be loving to all that he might encounter over the course of time and develop this love for all of creation for every human being. Even though he's living in great solitude, uh, he's not retreating because he's a hater of men, but because of the opposite, he's a lover of God and men. And by embracing this path that God has called him to walk of solitude is responding uh, to that call of love for him in, in that particular way that has been discerned. For all of us, it's a different way. And I think we would have to avoid uh, what your questions put forward here, you know, this kind of isolating ourselves from others. And we do it on a uh, day-to-day basis. And I think even sort of the realities of our own day, you know, the pandemic, I mean, a lot of people don't want to go back to the workplace. And to be honest with you, I don't blame them. And not just for the obvious reasons of not wanting to have to commute and uh, you know, have to get you know, dressed up and, or work on a particular time schedule. I, th- I think people can become very comfortable of, this kind of isola- in this kind of isolation. That even wearing the mask, I think if you all remember that there was something that felt protective to many people about that. Then nobody could see the expression on your face. And so you, you didn't have to put on, you didn't have to engage somebody, you could walk down the street, your face was covered. And you really didn't have to pay any attention to anyone. Good times. <laughs> oh, for the good old days. No, wasn't. Anthony. Even in a non-monastic setting, being alone, outside of accountability to family and community, opens the mind to lots of thoughts and evil suggestions. And a person can be alone in this sense, either literally solitary or in a crowd like a college. People can be severely tired, I'm sorry, tried when solitary in these senses. There's something in Ecclesiastes that Father quotes about walking alone, when you fall, who can help? When you are with others there they are even a preventative to falling. other people are encouragement to the heart yes absolutely and you know I think when we read uh, I came across a little quote I think it was from John Chrysostom uh, espousing the, the the beauty of friendship you know that it's one of the most exquisite and wonderful things in this life to have true true friends those who not only support us on an emotional level in our day-to-day life, but are really there to help us in the struggles in the spiritual life, that are encouragement simply by their their presence to us. And so there is this great difference between uh, the solitude that is connected to, to intimacy, like solitude and contemplation and intimacy are intimately tied I shouldn't use the word intimately there, are closely tied together. The contemplation and the solitude that goes along with it should allow us to engage others with greater freedom and love, to drop our defenses uh, to, you know, to you know, lose you know, a sense of irritation or resentment, things such as that. And a, a solitude that doesn't open us up to greater love, is is not going to bear be something that's fruitful because if it doesn't open us up to greater love for others how is it going to open us up in greater love for god and so again it it can't simply be a a retreat from the world it has to be a, a moving toward god toward reality in order that we might know greater healing by the grace of god and so greater freedom to love in the fullest possible way as God has created us to. Anthony, did you have a follow-up there or? No? Okay. Anybody else? All right. So we're on number seven at the bottom of the page. Abba Poiman tells us that Abba Theonis used to say that even if a monk manages to attain some virtue by his own will, God will not provide him with his grace, that this virtue might remain with him, for a monk must learn that he cannot have absolute trust in his own deeds. If, however, he goes to his fellow monks in order to consult them, then the virtue will remain with him. Wow. That's an important thing. I came across, and I posted a little while ago, a quote from Maximus of the Confess- Maximus the Confessor that was even more powerful than this, that uh, I can't remember it off the top of my head here. Hold on for one second. But it's very much like this and tied to this. So I wanted to just uh, share it with you if I could. Come on, where are you? Okay. To harbor no envy, no anger, no resentment against an offender is still not to have charity for him. It is possible without any charity to avoid rendering evil for evil, but to render spontaneously good for evil, such belongs to a perfect spiritual love. So we, we can actually not commit any sin against another and not give evil back for evil, and not have envy or jealousy or any of those things, but still not really reach the pinnacle of love that we are called to as Christian men and women. And I think Abba Poyman is communicating something similar here to St. Maximus. A monk manages to attain some virtue by his own will. Uh, God will not provide him with his grace that this virtue might remain with him. So we can enter into the spiritual life and strive for the virtues. And you know, simply through our discipline, begin to avoid you know, the, the great sin uh, in our life, or even small sins. But being a Christian involves much more than that. It means uh, seeking to, to love perfectly and to be raised up spiritually uh, to this participation in the very life of God. And so someone who is clinging to his will and simply by his will, not through obedience and not through responding to others, is not going to see the fullness of the grace of God, nor have that virtue be preserved in him for very long. Anything that begins with us, or anything that arises simply from ourselves is not going to endure. Eventually it'll be put to the test and it will begin to fall apart. And it's only those things that uh, are received through obedience are learned, I, I think through the mortification of life itself, you know, of dying to will, dying to self, you know, where we've been really put to the test and abandon ourselves to God, that's when God lifts us up by his grace and perfects our patience, perfects our love and our endurance. And uh, these are the things I think that only do come through experience. And I think so what we're getting here is a, a, a portrait or not a portrait, but a painting being pictured, painting being painted for us that in broad strokes about the, the larger view of the spiritual life, that it is connected to our, our relationship with God and being bound to him, but it's also connected to our relationship with others, of being bound to them. And this is important on two levels because it shows our need not to be Uh, those who shrink into isolation, but it also shows our responsibility to others, that we become those that they can trust, that we are those who, because of our love, our charity, our generosity of spirit over the course of time, foster within their hearts a trust where they can, you know, seek out our counsel, uh, or be vulnerable before us in their struggles and be able to tell us what's on their mind without our having to be fearful of how that vulnerability is going to be treated so it's it's never one sided in this in this regard i think sometimes we can think that you know that obedience you know you know has no responsibility on the part of the person who might be in that position of offering counsel. You know, that they in some sense have an even greater responsibility, not only for living the life of virtue themselves so that they can speak out of that experience, but they have to cultivate in the hearts of those around them, this trust that is, you know, only comes from experience of the other and their goodness. And we've so often seen, I think, throughout history, something like obedience being used as a hammer and individuals being seen as nails, you know, and uh, driving them into the ground. And in some ways, it either destroys, it can destroy a person uh, emotionally or spiritually or it can stunt them. It can infantilize them, that they shrink back into this, it's, it's, I wouldn't call it obedience. Uh, I think you know, it is sort of like a, a servile attitude that is rooted more in fear than in love. And to be honest with you, I think this is why we did see a great exodus from many of the communities around the time of the council because so often obedience was seen as that that often we aren't understanding the obedience of the gospel and the obedience of Christ himself that is rooted in this radical love and trust of the father. And I think what obedience was turned into often was a way of manipulating and controlling others. And uh, you know, uh, a way to make a person feel powerful and often would feed into, I think a kind of narcissism that we struggle with and when that deepens, uh, because a person is in power over others, then it can be really destructive on a terrible level. And so I think that's why pairing these two hypotheses is uh, very important, not only our striving uh, to live in this spirit, but really seeking out those who, who, who are loving and caring, as well as having this experiential knowledge. Okay. any comments on this? I will digress there a little bit, but any further thoughts or comments? Okay. Number eight. An elder said, if decent thoughts bother you, I'm sorry, if indecent thoughts bother you, do not hide them, but tell them immediately to your spiritual father and thus check them. For to the extent that a man hides his thoughts, so much more do they multiply and strengthen. In other words, just as a snake, when it comes out of its hole, immediately goes on its way. So an evil thought, as soon as it is revealed, immediately vanishes. And just as a worm consumes wood, in the same way an evil thought destroys the heart. He who reveals his thoughts by confession is quickly restored to health. He who hides them suffers from pride. So here, you know, we we make this turn into the revealing of one's thoughts, not hiding them. And that the revealing of them is not simply meant to be humbling or embarrassing, but ultimately healing. And, uh, And so this is, again, I think what we see in many of the Eastern Fathers, this view of the church as being more of a hospital and the sacramental, life as being the the means of our healing and the the ascetical life as being a means of healing as well, not of punishing the body or simply of self-discipline, but a means of opening our minds and our hearts to the action of God's grace that brings us deep healing. Anthony. On a theological or social this theological note, this destructive sense of obedience, as I understand it, comes from Jansenism, a Catholic Calvinism, a Calvinism focused for some reason on God's election, no place for a free love, it seems to me. Yeah, I I would agree that, you know, there is this sense that, you know, I think we see ourselves (coughs) as you know, sort of working through our own discipline of earning you know, that salvation rather than it being a gift, then there's a kind of harshness that comes over and veils the, the Christian message, the gospel itself. And it can veil, I think, our view of others as well as ourselves and turn it into something negative. And I think the impact that this would have on obedience is what we've sort of talked about here, that it could be something like a a slavish mentality that it forms in a person or crushes them or in the person who's in that place of responsibility uh, can lead them to become controlling of those around them. And uh, thinking even that they're doing good, that by breaking down the person and that by breaking their will, that they are, are doing good. And the problem is, is that that individual is not God, that you know they do not know the human heart. They do not know a person's experience, everything that they've been through. They don't see all ends. They don't see the crosses that people have borne. And so in an indiscriminate way, they can make judgments uh, in regards to another person's life and their sp- spiritual life that, again, is destructive. What we hear from Teresa of Avila, you know, again and again, it, it felt more like abuse. You know, her making herself vulnerable in light of the experiences that she was having spiritually uh, led then to, you know, a kind of ridicule or a kind of suspicion or a spiritual advice that really was was destructive for her that didn't help her or give her any light whatsoever but added to the darkness for her and uh, in the next hypothesis i think we'll see you know some examples of how that takes place then it is so powerful to compare the image of one who commands obedience put forward by christ a shepherd whose voice is followed, who carries those who are not strong enough to walk. One who stands in the midst of their followers is one who serves. To what you put forward just now, a hammer who drives others into a, uh, an exact place by sheer force. Wow, really amazing to reflect on. Exactly. And, you know, I think uh, Pope Francis, you know, I think uh, some people seem to ridicule him, I think, when he first mentioned this or first said it that you know that the pastors should smell like the sheep and in, in the sense that they are intimately involved with them, they know them, that there is a proximity to those that they serve. And I think the, the false spirit of obedience is really keeping people at, at arm's length or using that vulnerability again as a, a matter of control. Whereas a shepherd who loves his, his flock is going like Christ to lay down his life on their behalf or to seek out the one lost one, carry them if, if wounded, you know, uh, treat them with a, a kind of tenderness, uh, fight off the enemies, you know, as, as shepherds often, often did. They, they lived among their sheep the image that is often interesting in, in the Gospels is that of the door. Christ calls himself, I am the door. And it, it often sounded sort of odd to me when I first heard that. But the reality was, is that that's what a shepherd did at night when they weren't able to get back to like a place that was safe, that he would herd the flock into sort of a uh, uh, you know, amongst the rocks where there would be sort of a a natural place where he could lay his body down as the door where, so the sheep would have to literally crawl over him to get out, but also the enemies would have to crawl over him as it were over his dead body to get to the sheep. And, uh, And I think what Pope Francis is is saying is that so often that those positions of being a shepherd are used for privilege, rather than for that kind of service uh, of of being willing to lay down one's life and to make these sacrifices for the good of the flock. And uh, I think in our own day, that would be priests that are are willing to, to spend themselves and expend themselves for others, you know, in terms of accessibility, you know, uh, uh, in terms of counsel, confession, you know, when people are sick, you know, providing the sacramental needs, or even I think in terms of investing themselves in in preaching or the way and manner in which they say mass, that they give themselves over to that completely, and it can become something that is done pro forma, you know, that it's done, because it's a a duty to be completed, but one's heart might not be in it. And to expect that that would not have an effect upon one's flock, you know, is foolhardy and, and deluded. And there's a kind of infidelity there too. And so it's using that position, you know, for again, privilege rather than to serve. You know, if, the, if the mass is really the source and summit of our life, the Eucharist, then how we celebrate the liturgy would be reflective of that. You know, I think for everyone, you know, that how we enter into that reality, we should be bringing that which is best within us, the deepest faith, prayer, preparing our heart in every way. Oh, good, com- great comments. Okay, any, anything else or we'll move on? All right. So, number nine, Abba Markarius lived by himself in the deepest desert. Lower down, there was another desert in which many brothers lived in asceticism. Now, one day, as he was standing outside his cell, Markarius saw Satan in the form of a man passing on the road. He wore as clothing, a linen garment riddled with holes. In each hole, a small flask hung. The elder recognized him and said to him, hey, you big shot, where are you going? (laughs) I love these stories from the fathers and hey, you, or whoever translated this, hey, you big shot, (laughs) something to, uh, I sort of wonder if that's what the monk said, but in any case. I'm going to pester the monks with evil thoughts, answered Satan. Why do you need those little bottles? The elder asked again. I'm taking them so that the monks can taste the contents. Why so many? The elder asked in amazement. Oh yes, if someone does not like one, I give him another. If not that one, then I offer him a third one. In any case, from all of these, at least one will be pleasing to him. After Satan said this, he left. The elder stayed in the same place, watching the road for Satan's return. So Satan, this is a great little story. And the image is a little bit odd for us, certainly a linen garment with holes with little flask hanging from it. But it's telling us something that, you know, the, the devil almost has this, uh, you know, unending resource of of pleasing thoughts that he can put before us and that he has access to all of them as well as an understanding of our patterns our behaviors and so if one thing doesn't work for him if at a particular moment we are not attracted by something or finding ourselves desiring it he can pull out another and allow us to taste that, to see if there's a reaction, if it seems sweet to us. And, uh, and so I think this is a good thing to keep in mind in, in regards to, I think, our watchfulness of heart, but also a kind of humility there of, of realizing that the evil one is re- relentless, but he also will continually use things until he finds what works on us. And so even if we feel at a certain point that certain thoughts don't bother us as they once used to, or that we have been vigilant and struggled with them and so have gained greater uh, hold on them and or ability to move our mind away from them, uh, and so in a sense we lose taste for them. They're not as attractive anymore. The devil is always going to have something else there to put out, to dangle out in front of us and to say, taste this, you know, it's, you know, a sweet vintage and, you know, we'll we'll willingly take him up on it because there is always this this part of us, you know, that is seeking that kind of self-satisfaction or to please ourselves and and our senses in one way or another. And so, Markerius sees him move on with this and, uh, and he watches the, for his return, and as soon, as soon as he sees him, he says he greets him in the manner of, the, uh, of monks. I pray that you be saved. How is it possible for me to be saved, Satan answered angrily. Why not that, Elder asked, because everyone is angry with against me, and no one puts up with me. So you have no friends at all down there, Mercarius asked. So, an interesting little dialogue between the two of them. This greeting between monks, I pray that you be saved, you know, in some ways reveals the identity of of Satan, you know, certainly to Markarius who already sees, but the very greeting in and of itself reveals his identity because he can't respond to that in the typical way. How could someone like me be saved. And it's curious the response that he, he gives when Markarius asks him why not? Uh, because he says, everyone is angry against me and no one puts up with me. That he has met resistance and, uh, and he has been the a- attacker of the other monks. And, and in some sense, that truth is revealed to him as well. That his identity is that of tempter, of one who is seeking to draw people away from God and away from what is good. And so cannot imagine himself as being one who could possibly be saved. Actually, he says, I have only one brother up here, and at least he listens to me. And when he sees me, he whirls like the wind from joy, answered Satan. And what is the name of this monk? Said Satan, answered Satan as he left. Immediately, Abba Macarius got up and went to the monks. As soon as they realized he was coming, they took palm branches in their hands and came out to meet him. Each of them cleaned his cell in order to receive the elder with the hidden hope that he would stay with him. The elder asked which one of them was Theopemptos, and after finding him, he entered his cell. Theopemptos received him with joy, and they prayed and sat down, and they began to discuss spiritual matters. How are you doing, the elder asked the brother. With your prayers well, answered the monk. Perhaps, my child, you are struggling with some temptation. So far I'm doing well, answered the monk, since he was ashamed to tell the truth. The elder, with fatherly affection and graciousness, said again to the monk, my child, as you see, I have some years in asceticism, and everyone respects me. And yet, the thought of fornication bothers even me, an old man. Believe me, Abba, I am also bothered by the same temptations. Said the monk. Abba Macarius pretended that he struggled with other temptations as well until he got Theopemptos to confess all his faults, thoughts. After the brother had confessed all of his thoughts in this manner, Abba Macarius asked him, how do you fast, my brother? I fast until the ninth hour. The elder then advised him, you should fast until late at night. You should perform your ascetic duties with zeal, and you should learn passages from the gospel and the book of Psalms by heart. If the evil thoughts should sometimes come to you into your mind, never react to them. Never pay attention to earthly things. Rather, direct your mind always upwards. Confess this temptation that we discussed with your spiritual father, and the Lord will forthwith help you. After the elder had made the sign of the cross over the monk, he returned to his cell. So, you know, we see here sort of what we were talking about a little while ago what a true shepherd looks like a true spiritual father that there was this love and affection with which he viewed this poor monk that you know in his discernment he could see what he was struggling with and yet he did not seek to humiliate him or to beat him down but rather to lift him up and to apply this healing balm you know of placing himself on that same level, not in a condescending way uh, with the monk, but in in this way to raise him up in his hope, letting him know that despite the fact that he had many years of ascetical practice, that he's not beyond the struggle with the very same temptations, that even if he wasn't having them at that moment, he knew that in his lesser moments or vulnerabilities that he was absolutely capable of having them. And so, you know, this gives courage to the young monk's heart to acknowledge uh, not, you know, the thoughts freely and the struggle freely with him until they were able to get through each of the things that he was struggling with. And then, you know, what he follows up with is, I think, of equal importance. It's not only his capacity to discern what the young monk was struggling with, but to offer the, the path of healing there that would be best for him. He knew that he needed a more concrete role for himself in terms of his ascetical behaviors, in particular fasting, uh, in, in order to strengthen his will in the struggle with a bodily appetite. So first with food, you no know, extend his fasting to a longer period of time, humble the body in order that he might be strengthened in the struggle with with the flesh, uh, in particular, the the desires for fornication. And uh, to deepen his prayer, to raise his thoughts to God, so not to become overly fixated on the temptations as they come, but immediately turn the mind and the heart to to God, to uh, seek out the counsel of his elders, so not to give himself back over to this kind of fear and anxiety rooted in uh, concern over embarrassment, but to make sure that the path that he takes forward leads him to where he he needs to be in the struggle. So it's a wonderful image for us of what a spiritual father or spiritual elder would look like, Uh, compassionate, loving, affectionate, uh, and yet also offering you know, concrete means of healing. Looking out at the road from his cell, the elder once again saw the devil dressed in the same way as the first time. Abba Macarius asked him, where are you going now? I'm going to put evil thoughts into the minds of the monks, answered Satan, leaving. The elder again watched the road and waited for him. When he saw him returning, he asked, how are the brothers? awful answered Satan with displeasure. Why? They are all enraged against me. And the worst thing is that even the one whom I had as a friend who obeyed me has changed. I do not know how. and no longer obeys me, having become the angriest of all against me. For this reason, I have sworn an oath for the present, at least not to set foot in that place again for a long time. After saying these things, Satan left. The saint went into his cell, thanked God for his brother's salvation. So, extraordinary end, I think, to the, the, the story, you know, that we're able to see Satan's response that, that he lost his lone friend, but not only that, that this friend had become his greatest enemy through what uh, Macarius had done for him, that he directed that anger, his insensitive faculty to where it needed to be, towards the temptations of the the enemy. And so far from being this slavish obedient one uh, to the temptations, he becomes the fiercest warrior among all all the monks. So much so that the, the evil one gives up, that he had lost foothold in this community, that so long as he had one, even one friend there, It was worth his wow of going there and trying to tempt them all. But as soon as this one was aided by this wise elder, then Satan leaves the place. So, any thoughts, Josie? Father, does fasting help with the psychological temptations or only physical temptations of the body? I would say both, you know, that there is a kind of integrity to the human person, uh, even though we have a tendency to dissect the person, you know, as, in, as a way of understanding who we are, you know, and uh, psych- you know, the emotional level, the physical level, spiritual, but there is a profound unity that exists there. And so fasting, you know, of humbling the body physically uh, humbles those desires, they weaken the desire. But the humbling of the mind that takes place through the fasting uh, also then leads us to lean more upon God, to call out to him more and more in prayer. And that we begin to experience and feel within the body itself, our, our poverty outside of that relationship with God. And so uh, I've, I think I've mentioned this before that the fathers would often say it's before, right before the break of the fast, the prayer is often the strongest when we've humbled ourselves in mind and body, when we've been praying and fasting, that our, we become turned toward God in the most powerful way. And so one would really want to deepen one's time of prayer as one would come to the end of that fast period. And I think this is too one of the reasons that he extends that for the young monk, that it would lead to this humbling of the mind and the body, that one would begin to see in those desires, the desire for God, and would call out to him more and more in prayer. And so by extending the fast and allowing him to experience that on a bodily level, eventually he begins then to experience it on a spiritual and emotional level too. He begins to experience his hunger for the Lord, to be able to make that connection between the desires that he was having and the the desire behind all desires, which is God. And once that connection was made for him, you know, once he would follow Macarius's advice, he becomes this fierce warrior. So it's a great little story on multiple levels. I think in terms of the nature of this stru- spiritual struggle, the how we can be strengthened in it, the actions of the evil one, and the value of a spiritual father and the counsel that he can offer. All in this one story you know, I think just by meditating upon this, there's so much to be learned about the spiritual life. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before, and I, people ask me about this all the time, well, what do we do in a time uh, where there is a lack uh, of spiritual elders? And, uh, and we've talked about this, you know, that we do, we don't want to t- take an overly negative We want to be careful. We don't want to overly generalize and we don't want to take an overly negative view of things because we also live in a time where we do have access to the Avogatinos and uh, St. Isaac the Syrian and St. John Climacus that we have immediate access to their teaching and their example and the example of the saints, the sacraments and the availability of the sacraments and confession. And so we have a, a treasure house of things that we can take hold of that will give us hope and strength that God does not abandon us that even though we might live in a time where this kind of spiritual elder seems to be rare, you know, if we really enter into our, our spiritual reading deeply and we enter into the life of prayer, their, their teaching will penetrate deeply into the heart. And, um, Uh, often before this group, I I post something from, uh, I forget his elder Amphilios, I think is the name, where he says, you know, he only reads the three books, and uh, Isaac, the Syrians, and the, the latter divine ascent, and then the Evercatinos, but that he would never turn a page until he had interiorized what was taught there. That And in some ways, I think that's part of the discipline that is set before us, that we would take hold of the things that God has given us in our own day and age and seek to internalize them as much as we can, live them, practice them, and then take hold of those who can offer us good counsel as much as we can there's so much that is received in the Holy Eucharist and so much that is received through through confession that, you know, and beyond measure. And so I think any fear or anxiety that we should have should dissipate simply in keeping that in mind. Someone said on Twitter, the Lord gives the solution, then he allows the problem. yeah, sometimes people post things on Twitter, I'm not quite sure what they're saying all the time. And that's true for me, too. You know, I post some stupid stuff on there. Uh, but, uh, but I, I think I see what they're saying here, that, you know, we God doesn't leave us hanging. That God has already given us that which is most perfect and precious, his only begotten son and has shared with us his life, and that we are drawn into the life of the Trinity. And so, again, that should give us kind of confidence as we enter into the spiritual battle, that God has given the solution. He's given us his son, and, <clears throat> and he's given us the sacraments. And so we should be confident, Not again, not in ourselves, but uh, I think in, in God. Anthony. I think what matters is what flask you drink from or don't. Since 2018, the Catholic news has been consumed with objective wrongs, which exists, but can become consumptive. 2018 and 19, sex scandal, 2019, uh, isn't that Pacamama or what was that? I forget how it's pronounced. Uh, In the Vatican, 2020, 22 election, great reset, COVID. Ukraine in 2022. The imbalance and the fixation is real, but can be a poison to imbibe and gets in the way of classic spiritual food and drink. And maybe we can turn this to our good. Yes, you know, <clears throat> certainly, I, I think in the story of macarius uh, you probably, and at least in terms of how I read it, that it's, I read it in a, f- a far more personal way, you know, in terms of the things Uh, that would uh, tempt us more directly. But everything that you put forward here is true because it creates this profound agitation and, uh, and does become a distraction. And I think in our day and age, we see this. There's this constant shifting where no one knows what to trust anymore or who to trust or who to listen to. And so it creates a kind of paranoia. And, uh, you know, this deep agitation that, you know, we we live in a world that it's hard to perceive what is true, what is real. And because we're constantly immersed in something that's feeding us over and over again the same stories that often have these particular qualities that create this kind of uh, either agitation, anger in the heart or uncertainty. And so our ability to unplug from that and to immerse ourselves in prayer and to turn off the TV and uh, to to really to to read as as we do or to pray uh, or simply to allow ourselves to engage in silence uh, in activities. You know, that uh, pull the mind to a good place, sort of the things that Theophan taught Anastasia, that, you know, there is a study of certain things about the world or history that can be good, you know, to, to read uh, and to fill the mind with, as opposed to the things that you, you put forward here that are real, as you said and they're undeniable you know in terms of their exists existence and what's going on in the ukraine if that doesn't scare the heck out of you i I don't know what could at this point i mean it's a it's a frightening scenario that we see escalate on a day-to-day basis but that is that is true but i think what it should lead us to do is to turn to god more fully to cling to him to the one who's lord of life governor of life of history uh in whom we can place our, our true faith and then we begin to see our agitation begin to diminish but in a sense we have to train ourselves to do that it can be hard because it can you know in its own way it can taste sweet to us just as you know these little flasks that the demon Was holding out to that monk, you know, that there can be something that we want to feed on there. You know, it's, you know, they keep repeating it, but it's uh, the extraordinary. And even the extraordinary that is frightening and agitating, we can find ourselves going back to it over and over again, even though it is a kind of poison to us like cookies, candy. (laughs) <laughs> okay so that brings us to 8:30. 30 so we'll wrap it up there for tonight thank you all and a wonderful group wonderful stories and so i hope it's fruitful for y'all and uh don't be hesitant to go back and reread it okay when we close as always with our, our prayer to the that jesus taught us in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen our father May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thank you all. Have a wonderful week.